0: Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together, we can make this happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project, this podcast, the website, and the membership portal that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary, living, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for us all, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is one of those people who is at the heart of the transformation we need to change our world. Mark Lakeman was a city architect in Portland, Oregon, when, as you'll hear, he reached the end of his tether. A seven-year odyssey took him to communities around the world to explore what it takes to make community really work. He brought back all that he learned and started the transformation of his own community. The City Repair Project grew out of this a way of bringing people together in a living, vibrant community to change the nature of the places where they live. That first project saw a single city intersection transformed into a generative, creative space of genuine community. And in the two decades since then, thousands of similar projects have been launched worldwide, and Mark has been a driving force behind not just city repair, but planet repair. In this time of pandemic and social division, it's hard to imagine anyone working harder or with greater or clearer vision to heal our sense of what it is to be human. So people of the podcast, please welcome Mark Lakeman. So Mark Lakeman of the City Repair Project and so many other amazing and really generative ideas. Welcome to Accidental Gods. Thank you for joining us from Portland. It sounds kind of exciting out there.
1: Hi, Amanda. Really lovely to talk with you today.
0: And exciting? The fires?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, all kinds of visceral uh, feelings, um, including some terror and uh, fear for the future. And yeah, very much a sense of betrayal too. I just keep thinking to myself, we read that this was going to happen three decades ago. Climate scientists gave us clear warning, and it was front-page news buried, of course, in the more conservative sources. But um, yeah, I remember reading very clearly that fires would, would jump in scale and frequency. And here we are, having done not, not just nothing about it. I mean, almost nothing. The agencies that could prepare it and tried to inform people and help local communities have some sense of preparation and and, and some technologies but and, and building codes. But uh, overall, we've only exacerbated the problem through political malfeasance, really.
0: Yeah, and, and anyone who tried to make a difference, certainly my experience over here was that they had their funding cut quite quickly. So it's been very hard. And I think we will move on to the actual topic of the podcast in a second, but I think it's quite interesting that Certainly over here, and I imagine with you in the States, a lot of the narrative was that the Western-educated industrial-rich democracies, what Jonathan Haidt calls the weird communities, would be hit last when climate change began to really bite, and that it would be the global south, low-lying nations, Bangladesh you know would be completely flooded, Other places would burn, but actually we in the West probably would be growing more crops faster. That that was a kind of a narrative that took hold. And I think that seems to me to be breaking down very fast, but I'm not sure it's breaking down fast. We think it's breaking down fast because we have a narrative that says this is happening. I'm guessing it's not gaining traction with the people who think climate change is a Chinese conspiracy theory.
1: Huh. Yeah, I would, I would say, I'm just, uh, I'm remembering a big initiative that we were part of a few years ago to, uh, we were funded, interestingly, by the Rockefeller Foundation to redesign multiple cities in the Bay Area as part of an initiative called Resilient by Design,
0: wow.
1: in which Rockefeller, uh, after Hurricane Sandy, became persuaded very mightily that, um climate change is real and that they're in a position to do something about it. So they have been funding the hundred cities initiative and that, and they consider the Bay area kind of the crown jewel of all of the, all the leverage points that they can apply their power to. And so they were thinking if there's a region in the world that has the capacity to act with um, concerted kind of vision, it would be the Bay area with all of its diverse peoples and circumstances. It can provide prototypes for the rest of the world so we were trained up um, rapidly, and were helped to learn that you know climate change is really a, disru- a disruption of, all, of everything that's normal. Yeah. It's um, certainly characterized by you know rising sea levels, but it's also punctuated by events in which um, multiple uh, impacts combine at once. Sandy being one of the uh-huh. best cases, but you know in the Bay Area we were able to see that in something like a fifty-year time window, we'll have, um, events that are about, you know, where the, where the, where the water levels themselves, not to just speak of the wind driving rain, but the water levels themselves through combined effects will reach around 14 feet higher. But actually that's just a really solid guess. Yeah, It's actually likely to be much worse than that. But when you consider things like water flowing into the bay, um, you know, torrential rains driving the, um, the amount of volume that's coming down a riverway through multiple apertures into this into the Bay Area. And then you think about things like storm surges and king tides uh, combined with sea level rise. Um, sea level rise is only a small part.
0: Yeah.
1: One of the things that we were able to establish because of a team of sp- spectacular um, kind of ecologists that work on uh, wetlands, we, we had a public presentation from that team. There were 10 teams chosen from around the world. One of them was called public sediment. They were able to establish that the wetlands of the world will all die. Oh, what? that all of the ecological services that they provide. The
0: biodiversity loss just from that will be catastrophic.
1: So many families of the Tree of Life, you know not to even speak of their sequestration services and God yeah and, and wave attenuation that, that there is no way to augment them quickly enough to fight um, sea level rise. So we're going to lose all of those things. Anyway, I, I just want to summarize by saying, you know, we learned that it's really a political problem, of course. Yeah. And um, it's going to play out m- more evidently than anything in terms of um, societal, you know, economic, societal disruption. Food systems will be disrupted. And then that will certainly be a launch pad for all kinds of unrest and disruption and then repression and then just helplessness. And it's really only the, ten, the first 10 feet of, of what could potentially be as high as a 200-foot sea level ride. Oh. The first 10 feet are, is where we get a chance to fight for the future. And after that 10 feet, um, it, everything's out of control.
0: Okay, so I can feel a different podcast happening. Let's We might come back to that another time if you have time, because that's yeah. a very interesting thread to go down. But for now, let's take a step Possibly forward, I don't know when in your timeline that happened, to your origins of what got you to start the city repair project, if we can do that kind of as a as a run-through of how you got to city repair and then what it is, because it seems to me that it's it is one of the things that could completely change the trajectory of where we are in this moment in the midst of the pandemic with all of the political upheavals arising. It could be a game changer.
1: Let me say, um, as we go into this, that it's the city repair project and the fact that we use all of our infrastructure projects as a means to organize and build community, okay. yep. to reskill people and to engender participatory design literacy. It's that work yeah. that inspired Rockefeller to pluck us out of all of these other teams that were competing. Okay. We work with f- like more than 40 communities at yeah. once to get. So training 40 communities and then they go out and they implement and we're sending them volunteers. And so we really enlist, we call, put a call out to the entire region. That's this huge barn raising. We're basically like, Hey, everyone who, you know, and we're very, we're very transparent about um, colonization. We're like, you know, we're in a colonial grid there. We're absent gathering places and we're undertaking an initiative to restore um, cultures of participation and self-determination and therefore resilience. And one of the things that's been programmed out of our lives is the barn raising. God damn it. It's back. Here's here, you know, it's happening all over the city all at once. And we're, this is our we're going into the 21st year of doing this. So it's, it's, you know, the plan has been to reinstill basically a, a point in the cycle of time that is supposed to be happening every single year as a, as a, as a cultural moment or a ritual. So we're, we're in the 21st year of doing that. But yeah, when we put out the call, people across the region respond.
0: Because people want community. I mean, that's what we found in during the lockdown is people are so hungry for community and that being given the time and the space to create it seems like a huge way to give people the gifts of resilience and agency. So if you're not only promoting the concept of community, but giving them the tools with which to to connect to each other, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yep. So can you give us a yes. little bit of the history? the colonial grids uh, you know how you got to that and then because in the uk where the colonialism came from we don't have so many grids but i think we still have a really disconnected urban centers so let's take a wind back have a look at how you got to there and then look at where we could get to
1: okay yeah i'll give you a really concise account so the the story of how we came to be able to understand the context that we're in and be able to actually see it and then engage it creatively. You know, as far as my own personal contribution to this effort is concerned, I, mean, I, can't, I play a key role. Uh, I basically am the child of two architects. I was conditioned to go into um, a modernist career thinking that design could change the world, which is like one of the few things about modernism that actually was true. Is, is, is relevant, timeless, and true. Um, that design can be that, but it, it isn't as modernism would have us believe that it's about form and it's about sculpture and just about pretty much beauty. It's more than that. Design is a tool for for problem solving. And anyway, I'll I'll say more about that in a minute. But in my career, I was very fortunate to be designing the Bank of America building on the west end of the Morrison Bridge in downtown Portland. There was a huge toxic waste cover-up that was disclosed on the last day I worked in this office. I was so disgusted by what I was hearing because Bank of America's sitting on this giant toxic waste cover up right on the edge of our river and on the salmon come up the river and then people ingest the salmon and then the cancer, you know, that ensues in people is just, you know, one of the symptoms of all of this um, irresponsibility and lack of vision, lack of commitment. So I quit. Um, and I, and I really read the riot act in, the, in a very lovely way to my, all my bosses, I got them all in a conference room and I quit I kinda of quit at them for three hours. Mark, well done. Just doing all these diagrams of thank you. You know, everyone gets a chance to do this one time per job. I basically told them that I, I had faith in all of them and, and that the reasons that they went into the, the culture of design um, was were still within them and all these compromises we felt we had to make just in order to get the next job were all understandable and at the same time you know, we could stand for something more and we could attract a better class of client. And anyway, stuff like that.
0: Did that make a difference, do you think? Did it change the culture of the company?
1: Absolutely. Basically, to jump forward, to kind of pole vault a little bit into the future about that particular question. Yeah, when I came back from seven years of traveling, basically I went out, I went f- out and for seven years I traveled to different native cultures just asking, and this is a really short version, but I basically was saying, as I would, you know, stop, spend time, make friends, learn. I was uh, observing settlement patterns and the the economies of local communities and how they would interact. In you know, basically place based people with multi generational communities where systems of indoctrination and you know institutions of coercion, um, you know, haven't really taken hold, where people are in, in active resistance. So I'm visiting different villages around the world and asking, do you have any idea what the hell is wrong with me and my people? You know, and not making it all about me the whole time, but kind of, you know, everybody knows that I'm really curious to know what they think. So I got to hear a lot about people's views of colonization of the entire Western Hemisphere. And you don't think of that it that way when you're in the Western Hemisphere. Um, you know a bit about the story, but you just kind of go into denial because you have to pay your rent and get on with your life. Um but here I was really visiting people who were, uh, you know, re- in a sense, refugees, a particular Mayan group in southern Mexico and Chiapas, right at the onset of the Zapatista Revolution. So I was there, I was there to observe, uh, very much in a kind of permaculture mode, but before I had ever learned of the, the word permaculture, I was there to, I basically knew, I said it to myself this way, I want to know what people are like, because I don't think I do. Um, something's wrong with everywhere I've ever been. And I had already traveled broadly. Somehow it felt as if um, systems were out of balance and there was this constant breaking of continuity historically, uh, culturally. So I got to learn about colonialism from people who had been resisting it for 500 years. And uh, one of the most lovely things was when someone said to me, first of all, this person said, you don't even know who you are. You don't, Your people don't know who you are. You don't know what's happened to you. You think you're the conquerors? Ha, I mean, I'd, been, I'd just been crying and apologizing for the impact of, you know, European colonialism. And this guy's like, no, 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 no. You guys only did this because it was done to you so long ago, you don't even know who you are. He said, you need to go home, stand in the closest street intersection and look at, you know, in all, in all directions and notice that the lines are long and flat and straight. And then understand and walk a block away and see it's the same and walk to another town and see it, that it's the same. And then realize you're in a giant violently imposed, just inconceivably violently imposed infrastructure. And then he said, and then try to find out when your family first came into contact with those lines.
0: Hmm.
1: And if you can discover that, then you'll learn who you actually are, because that was the last time your people had a voice. And of course, that takes me back to England. That takes me back to um, a Roman invasion, the utter disruption of my people there. I'm Mark Lakeman, and I think that we came from Lakeland, actually.
0: North of England, yeah.
1: Yeah, but I don't really know, and I've got to investigate that more. Um, that was some excellent uh, instruction. And when I did, I mean, and, oh my gosh, while I was there, I saw so many things that revolutionized my sense of um, our relationship, humans human beings' relationship to each other. Like I got to see an actual geomorphic village generated by people as an ecological, climatological, you know, geographic response in which architecture is not an imposition or it's not a formal exercise. It's a resultant of participation that absolutely fits them like a, like the shell fits a snail and, um, you know, a place of such um, incredible equilibrium, even though there was poverty and even though, um, they were to a great extent refugees and having to kind of, you know, contend with the government and then invasive cultures around their perimeter, um, You know, campesino culture trying to destroy rainforests to get more arable land. You know, there was all of those dynamics. And at the same time, um, I saw social architecture that exceeds anything we practice in this highly evolved city of Portland and anything I've read about theoretically in a book. Like their starting point of how they see each other, their sense of interdependence is, is at an entirely different level of seeing themselves as being part of a greater whole. Um, you know, intergenerationally.
0: And connected to the more-than-human world around them. Did you see much of that sense of interconnection?
1: God, yeah. There was a thing that happened that changed me forever. As I sit here, I'm a different person. So imagine I'm I'm just this, this guy who's, you know, gone through all this confusion and conditioning and been part of sports teams, you know, where we're smashing each other and really taught to def- define my sense of worth by how I um, contend with other males especially and, you know, part of, you know, subtle and overt misogynist conditioning. So here I am in this moment and I'm just about to leave and this young trickster fellow who, okay, first of all, just see all of the men and women all wear white tunics and they all have beautiful long hair and they're entirely uncharacteristic of um, what you basically see of Mayan culture. This is the Lacandon Maya and they're quite distinct from everyone else because they are the only unconquered group oh, really? so we're in that kind of context and we're in this this kind of um, sort of s- sacred space which just looks like an ordinary palapa but the ground is covered with banana leaves and all of these incense burners with the faces of um, the kind of characteristics of nature kind of deities and uh, someone's been singing for three days inviting um, the creative force of you know the divine to, to sit with us and it freaking showed up wow <sighs> Yeah, it makes me shake um, just to think about it. Anyway, uh, yeah, while I'm sitting there and this trickster guy who'd just been really, he'd been my guide and he'd been teasing me the whole time and kind of tricking me and just really looking at myself. Finally, he's just talking to me with a serious sober tone. He asks me, well, have you gotten what you came for? You know, do you think you've learned what you were seeking? And I, you know, I was just so affected by like certain spectacular things that happen, subtle things, just watching the way they would interact and especially their dialogues as whole groups and, and how they would actually arrive so effortlessly at a decision. Hmm. As he's sitting there talking to me, this butterfly lands on his shoulder and he leans back and he's balancing like he's sort of on a lotus petal or something. He's balancing just on his, on his butt with his hands out like this and his, his feet are forward in the air. And he obviously had a very strong abdomen as he was balancing and he just with the flick of his finger he just sort of suggested that the butterfly fly follow follow his hand so here's this little butterfly flying um above his hand and he does this thing like this with the butterfly flying between his hands as he's kind of moving it around
0: like a kind of tai chi movement almost
1: yeah yeah very very fluid and beautiful like that it lands on his wrist and he's just holding it up so i can see and he moves his wrist over, and the butterfly hops to his other wrist, and he kind of goes back and forth, the butterfly hopping back and forth. And then finally, it it's on his finger, and he leans forward. He says, now, put your finger up. It took a while, but the um, you know, he kind of had to coerce it, and he was saying Mayan words. So I was used to speaking with him in Spanish, but he was saying some Mayan words and obviously trying to persuade the butterfly to land on the,
0: your finger.
1: the white man <laughs> and blow the white man's head out of his own butt. Um, which is what happened. And finally, Butterfly jumped over, and I just sat there. And it was the most beautiful moment to have an insect apparently choosing to land on me. And then it just kind of flew to different parts, my leg, my shoulder, and uh, I just felt kissed. Anyway, um, that's only one story. The, uh, there was an anthropologist there whose work I had been reading. And he said to me when I met him, he's like, I have never left. Since the late 50s, the things that I saw and the way that these people interact with with animals, I could tell you story after story. And he told me some of them. He's like, something is going on here, and it is is available to all of us. Uh, How our our consciousness could be if somehow we could recover and live in a more integral way um, and have more repose and not have to work so hard all the time. So he said, I've never left and I'll probably die here um, because I need to be near this.
0: Yeah, why would you leave? So why did you leave, Mark? Because you could have stayed, maybe?
1: Well, I was there long enough to have my mind blown. I was always, actually, I was inspired by um, the story of Gauguin and how he had left to um, go kind of seek this imagery and this story that he wanted to bring back to France and then exhibit. Mm. And I think he 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 was very much hoping to have a kind of a transformative effect, not just on... The world of art but on culture by depicting people who just lived it with a just a fundamentally different paradigm and I was very inspired by that so I invented this this uh kind of traveling art studio um it had kind of lights that would go out to different sides and it had um, c- compartments for storing paintings and then traveling libraries and mm. uh, all my equipment and uh, right when I got there the Zapatista revolution Started and I managed to have a letter from the uh, Nabalom Institute, which means House of the Jaguar, which would give me um, passage through the military lines and into the Lacandon Maya. Oh. So I was very lucky that way to have had that set up. <laughs> yeah. Only two days before everything hit the fan. Yeah, it uh, the beginning of 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 city repair was really a lot of what you might call R and D, um, getting out. Developing more of a stereoscopic view of the world, learning more about d- the design of villages as an expression of um, people's values and vision being integral with their action. Right. You know, and you could say that it's sort of this cl- cliche of the white man going out to try to find the Garden of Eden by, you know, looking at so-called untouched, naive, or whatever, indigenous people. And I think that um, it wasn't quite like that. But I could, I wouldn't blame anyone for seeing it that way. But the, the truth is that. There is such tremendous value for any person who gets out of um, the Western construct and goes just to look at other people respectfully living in the world. So I was well advised. And uh, when I came home to Portland, Oregon, I did stand in the grid and I did in my neighborhood in the intersection right next to where I had always lived. And I looked and I saw, um, I finally saw it, you know, and I had l- learned in architecture and planning and in my career about the grid, I'd learned that it was a colonial imposition, but they never connect the sociological impact that really help you understand not only what's really been done to the land and to the people who lived there, but also what it does to the people who occupy now um, that we live in this kind of quiet desperation with all these um, incredible consequences that we can barely glimpse playing out in our lives. So I looked and I saw, oh, this is rather like a graveyard. Everyone's well-organized into this little Mm -hmm. grid, but we're all elsewhere. We all leave where we live to go elsewhere to earn the money to pay for where we can barely get to be. So we leave the home zone to go to the work zone, scarcely realizing that zoning is actually an artifice um, that is imposed across the continent. And, uh, you know, we've got all these brilliant causes emerging, like, you know, new urbanism, which would have us... A shorter distances to walk and more, you know, no, no food deserts and parks closer by, but they are failing still to see that when you have a professional class of designers designing whole landscapes and the whole thing is really driven by somebody wanting to make a gigantic amount of profit. And it may not even be necessary to the culture or really even needed by the people who live there. And it's not respecting any kind of, you know, place-based story that pre-exists, but that's our condition here. It's just normal for us all to live in products and not realize that the, that the neighborhood itself is really a development product. It's not a village in almost any sense, except that we live there and we might still call ourselves villagers, which is really what takes us to city repair. That's, right. that's the thing we do. We're saying you can understand your context. It's possible for you to understand how it is you come to this place where you feel like you have to ask other people for permission to have agency where you live. Like, how did that because, happen? Because I'm
0: guessing it doesn't happen in Mayan villages. They do not happen.
1: No, to, they just get uh, up in the mission. morning and <laughs> they're done. Whatever they have to do, they're, like I was told, you know, the, what drives our economy is figuring out what, how we're going to mentor our children today.
0: Okay, we have a ways to go. But so you came back to Portland, you stood on that intersection, and you changed that intersection. Can you tell us a little bit about that very first kind of revolutionary intersection transformation?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, because I was really well coached, and not just by uh, my, uh, these Mayan folks, but also by others, especially including a, a Cheyenne architect named Elk River, my, my way of approaching this was to see that um, in terms of design, like, okay, if, if we were villagers, there would be a program of places and spaces that um, would accommodate and facilitate interaction, and exchange, and creativity. And looking across the sweep of the neighborhood, I'm like, oh, there's just housing. This really, and then there's maybe a bus stop on the perimeter to take you elsewhere. We're missing the entire spectacular program that would otherwise bring us together. And if we actually lived and worked with each other, um, you know, our health indicators would skyrocket. Our crime indicators would plummet. Domestic violence would probably be you know, extinguished And also, you know, all of these other challenges related to drug use and um, traumas that children are going through—if we were to effect an essential repair of the connectivity of people to each other, right where they lived, you know, to the point where they would say, "Oh, yes, gosh, we're all very creative, aren't we?" Um, We're there are thousands of people living here, and we all go away elsewhere to work with thousands of other people. But never here, never, ever freaking right here, except maybe a block party and barbecue. Um, So we started to engender that program of places and spaces. And um, before the intersection, there was actually another more fundamental radical project based on two things. Um, The time I spent in Oxford having tea in the afternoon with people, um, the way that everything just stops and people make create this moment in time to just be together. That was fused together with um, the moment of the Mayan meeting house and kind of this, this architecture of, of being integral with nature. Mm. So a, my friend Elk River, the Cheyenne I had mentioned earlier, he said it needs to be spatial. You can't talk people you know, into or out of things or you know, into a better world. You have to model it wordlessly. So for me, that meant creating something. I won't go too much into this, but while I was uh, in Oxford at the Bodleian, I was uh, digging into a lot of um, different texts, and I came away with a bunch of really interesting suggestions from older cultures about how the world would be changed, like people having visions about the world being changed. There were three visions in particular that, I, that were um, inspirational to me, and one of them was in this ancient Coptic notion um, that, a, that a designed thing Would be key to changing the world. Mm. Uh, Another one said that there was this moment in 1996 where 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 something and they didn't use the word 1996, but it was like 4,000 years from now, which happened to be 1996. Something amazing would happen. It was like, and maybe it's a designed thing. Uh, And then there was another thing that I read about the 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 the, the key moment of the of the of 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 Moon Day or Lunes, the day of the goddess, and so. This special intervention was created. You know, we need a new mythological landscape. We have, we're, we're fighting against forces of such tremendous violence. And what we have is actually more powerful. It, it's, 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 it's our creativity and love and art and beauty and, and food and, and, you know, and, and community with each other. But how can we create this strategically in a way that suggests, you know, well, that would engender an awakening and, and a creative urge broadly? So this tea house was created. And, it was, and essentially, it was a gigantic womb space. It was woven into a living garden of fruit trees and, and flowering vines and stuff. And it was just a gigantic thousand square foot, literal, literally, I'm in the shape of a womb. You can actually find this online uh, to see the, the, the floor plan of it. But when you look at it, you're like, oh my God, it's a giant child with all the organs and the brain and the heart of it comprising different features of the space. And you would enter it through a very sacred portal and go through this tube, you know, kind of tunnel into this um, space of total inconclusivity that had trees coming up through it and branches from the trees coming down through the roof and just enlivening the space and then uh, when you went into it everything was just free and the sense of space just with all these different levels and then the fact that everything was made out of branches and some of them were alive and there were trees that everything was attached to you couldn't it just was really like going into a dream, but the intent was to make it feel like you were back inside yeah. your mother.
0: Where is this, Mark?
1: Uh, southeast Portland in Selwood.
0: Okay. And is it still there?
1: No, no. It was um it was built basically to exist long enough to catalyze the energy for people to go out and seize the street.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So it it was really like a a, a like a booster rocket. So it was the first way of addressing the isolation in the neighborhood. Just thinking about the U.S. only, you know, every neighborhood is deficient gathering places, and here's one intervention that will be relevant to all neighborhoods. So this is a prototype that will inspire people to learn and also to act. So it was made out of 10, 10 rooms that all broke apart. At a certain point, once the city found out about it, and they said, you can't do that, you haven't asked permission, my friend Elk River said, the first thing you got to not is do permission. is ask permission. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. He's like, you're crossing a line and everyone needs to realize that they're all on the same side of that line, you know, disempowerment stuff. So he's like, you can't ask permission. So the city came along and said, you can't do this. Oh my God. And by that, they were too late because hundreds and hundreds of people in the neighborhood were now connected and they all stood up, they got off their couches, they turned off their TVs and they organized, and they fought back and they wrote letters and they got the TV and all this media involved. And Suddenly it looked like the city was trying to beat up this little neighborhood that had just made something out of, you know, garbage and natural materials. And it was quite a drama, quite a creative drama. And we won. They had to back off. And at that point then we moved the, all the energy out into the intersection. Right. We took over the intersection. We built all these features on the corners. All of it was illegal, and I knew that. Um, but And the neighbors, you know, the neighbors were just like, well, why shouldn't we build a little, you know, 24-hour book station on the southeast corner and why shouldn't we put a place for children to share toys and adults to put fruit and vegetables out on the And why shouldn't it all be beautiful and sculptural and you know statements of recycling and ecological design why shouldn't there be a giant playhouse wrapped around a tree on the northwest corner and skyscaping bench for an entire family to sit on on the southwest corner and a 24-hour solar-powered tea station. I mean, there were all these different amenities. We were basically like, okay, what's the program of a really successful village heart?
0: Hmm.
1: Let's treat this like a garden, and we'll put all these little starts into the human space. We'll really treat ourselves as an ecology, and we'll use ecological principles for engendering kind of a, a growth and an impact, cohesion. Anyway, that was all legal, and we painted the entire surface of the street with these concentric colors and these lines going in all four directions. So we're really reclaiming the co- crossroads. Actually, you know, city repair is really about treating everything as a crossroads to say, wherever pathways converge, that is where lives come together. And if we keep nurturing that effect, we will regenerate human culture. Cause after all, that is the very first move of urban design or a village design, Great. you know, where do the pathways cross that will be where, you know, activities and functions are clustered. So you support that, and then community builds itself.
0: And you worked with the police, rather interestingly, so that when they were called, they were on your side.
1: Yeah, we were kind of um, very preemptive about it, proactive about it. Uh, We we knew that there was this tall, kind of terrifying-looking, but very sweet, almost seven-foot-tall policeman named Ed And we set up an arrangement with him so that every Monday, these two really wonderful little girls would be waiting on the corner for him at 7 o'clock with chai tea. This was before chai was really even known in Portland. But we're making chai and usually chocolate cake or some form of pie. And he would show up right on time. And a lot of the time, we could get him out of his car to come into the tea house, which was, I mean, I remember the first time he walked into it. and He just was like, oh oh, I'm sorry, because it's such an intimate space. We said, no, 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 come on in, come on in. So we were doing, you know, people always joke about cops and donuts, and we were being, um, we were sort of saying, well, you know, rather than waiting for this terrible moment where everyone's at, ma- at mad at each other and you're in a protest and that's the only time you talk to the police, let's build a relationship with him. Like, this is, this is one of the things I learned from these various, you know, advisors as I was visiting them in my travels, like, you are actually all on the same side. Mm. And if you're polarized and sort of tricked into thinking you have to fight over insolvable issues, then you'll remain trapped. But if you can just act from a place where you actually see each other's common humanity and then afford each other that dignity and respect, then act with everything you do actually starts to invite people in to share that with you and then give that, offer that back to you. So that's how we treated Ed. That's how we engaged in transportation department, got mad
0: because you are blocking a highway.
1: Yeah, we were messing with the right-of-way. And Ed said, uh, I am paid to stop things which are bad, but I am not paid to stop things which are good. And he said, we will not even be reporting this, um, and transportation is going to have to be the one to engage you. And they're going to get mad. And he said, when they do, call the police. So that's what happened. We're like literally across the table. You know, Now we finally brought transportation to the table. Oh, and I need to say, we called them. We, we said, we have a proposal. Your own website says you want to engage children to do things in public space. You want to clean up streets and build stewardship and all this sort of stuff related to livability. And uh, they said, well, what are you talking? And, and we said, oh, there's 22,000 street intersections in the city. And on the other hand, all these ancient villages around the world where intersections are actually things like piazzas, gathering places. Um, so we'd like to repurpose one. After all, it's public space. And they said, okay, so this is what we have to say that's public space. So nobody can use it. It's a direct quote. So we're like, wow, this is amazing. It's like watching the movie Brazil. It's like, we're just punching ourselves in the face now is like, you know, it's public space. So maybe the public could use it. And, you know, when we, we met with them downtown and we looked across the table, it was just absurd. They were saying, you know, you can't do that. You don't have the power. And then our answer was, okay. So if that's true in our neighborhood, then that's true in yours that nobody ever, anywhere at all has power of place. And we live here our whole lives, we pay for our, we pay our mortgages for 30 years, and you're saying that we have no power, the space between our homes does not bring us together. And we said, we're trying to do this not only for our neighborhood, but for everyone in the city. And really we were thinking about all cities mm-hmm. because again, as, as we were coached to understand, these ordinances that engender isolation through design apply everywhere across the entire empire construct. And the vulnerability of empire is that whenever there's a place-based innovation, it can be replicated across the entire construct of right. design.
0: And what did Transport do when you presented them with this concept?
1: Oh, they were mad. <laughs> they were mad. But they also said, okay, be, but because we had continued to engage them respectfully and we never reacted to their, to their um, kind of attitude, Uh, we left them room. We left them the chance to, to stand in their own dignity. And they said, the truth is this is our favorite problem. And we have an entire wall dedicated to it. We love this thing. And we just, we don't feel that we have the discretion to be able to, uh, you know, to be able to support this. And the truth is that after that, I mean, after the whole thing happened within a couple of months, the city council unanimously legalized it and they reprimanded the department of transportation. They said, you never do this again. When somebody comes forward with a constructive proposal that's connected, you know, like we were citing the benchmarks and the goals and objectives of the region and all the way down to the neighborhood that are unmet perpetually. Right. And they said, they've come with you to you with an organized proposal and you just say no. Like from now on, always freaking ever, you know, um, entertain it and bring it to our attention.
0: Right. And was Portland a particularly progressive place at this point? Is that why they said that? Uh, could you imagine that happening in I, I don't know list of of very, very reactionary places across the states? Would they still say the same?
1: I would say, um it's kind of a yes and no because like just like um you know, after we did this, we were in washington d c to the planning bureau, and they're like,, ha, 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 no way will that ever happen here And then it happened four years later, okay. so Portland. You know, Portland's on this kind of spectrum of cultural recovery, like a lot of places, like everywhere, really is. And we were building on um, progressive momentum, like we had an incredibly progressive planning culture that was frustrated always being conscripted to just facilitate, you know, thoughtless mm. development. But uh, nonetheless, we'd accomplished like growth boundaries around all cities, making all uh, waterways public and, and riparian zones.
0: But they're public, so nobody can then use them, right? Because that's the, that's the definition yeah. of public, Because nobody can go near it because it's public now.
1: Yeah, you can sort of access it, but you can't really do anything and you can't get to it. Yeah, it's complicated. But, you know, it's all in transition. I consider all these, okay. yep. all transitional steps toward a better world. Messy and imper- imperfect. And
0: you did that first intersection, and as I understand it, there are now thousands across Portland and other areas in the states where intersections have been reclaimed and humanized. Is that right?
1: Yeah. We literally don't know how many there are now in the United States. Um, I stopped being able to count the number of cities that have replicated the ordinance, and uh, in most cases, our city bureaucracy is helping the bureaucracies of other cities to basically liberalize public space. And other cities are are replicating our ordinances. We have three favorite ordinances um, here. One for transforming street intersections, as many as any neighborhood wants for free. Wow. And now, as of a couple of years ago, all of the streets that connect all those intersections in all residential zones are up for reinvention for free.
0: For free, as in the city will pay for whatever is required if the residents create a plan of what they want?
1: Um, well, like that. Um, it's actually for free in terms of the initiative has to come from the neighbourhood, it has to be place-based, and it has to have a certain amount of support, a certain percentage of support of, of, of local residents within a two-block radius around any,
0: okay.
1: around any intervention have to, um, a minimum of 80% of the people, which is quite a low bar, Um, because the city really wants to incentivize these things.
0: Hang on, 80% is a low bar?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of...
0: We we struggle to get over 50% to agree to something. Yeah. So I'm really interested. You said when you were with the Maya that you were really watching their decision-making process. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what they did that we could replicate? Thank you. Not being Maya.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you know, most people are familiar with, obviously, ideas like consensus or Robert's rules, different ways that people come to arrive at decisions, set agendas, and get something done within a focused period of time. And more recently, um, systems like sociocracy or, or dynamic governance um, tend to be preferred over consensus for good reasons. Yeah. Okay, well, so uh, I was only familiar with some of that uh, when I was with the lockdown in the mid 90s, but what I saw I still have never seen here. Except now in the community where I've I've personally been working, like, I'm still in the same neighborhood. Part of my commitment to transformation is to remain rooted in that same first place and not leave.
0: Where you were brought up.
1: Yeah. So by being able to be there, I get the benefit. And I really recommend this for everyone to do this for their own lives, to um, be resonant in a place, to choose their place and set down their roots um, and be there to watch the continuity over time and to be really engaged in it and and helping it over time, because it's, I can't imagine a richer living experience than to do that. And I have been a traveler, so I understand the difference. Anyway, uh, so what I saw in the Mayan community, uh, it, it, it is possible. Basically I'll just describe it. Um, two situations having to do with conflicts on their perimeter where campesinos were um, cutting down the rainforest and burning, uh in order to get more arable land and they're coming into the Lacandon reserve which has been set aside to protect this basically neolithic people and so that then there's a conflict with campesinos who then have are brandishing guns and um the lacandon are yelling at them and telling them they have to stop and they have to leave um so that kind of thing and it's really scary for the community because the campesinos a lot of them are violent and uh They drink a lot of alcohol, and there are murders that happen, and the lock and down are very um, nonviolent. So I saw this um, dialogue, two dialogues. One was about letting me stay in the community, whether or not they would let me stay, and the other one was having to do with this conflict on the perimeter. In both cases, there was a big gathering. All these men and women were able to come, and they all came into uh, one large kind of architecture, and it was not even big enough for all of them. So they were in these little subgroups and then individuals who were walking back and forth. And sometimes someone would get on a table um, and yell so that everyone could hear them. And it seemed chaotic, but what was what was happening was people were talking to everyone they felt that they needed to connect with. Hmm. So things, people were aggregating and then groups were joining and then kind of separating. And um, it was kind of moving, you know, punctuated by people like, Saying things loudly across the whole group, and sometimes everyone would stop and listen, and other times they wouldn't. um And then they would suddenly disperse. And I, I asked, like, "Well, okay, what did I just see? What, did, what just happened?" They're like, "Oh, right. Okay, so the way things work here is that we're basically... A, I'm, I'm having to paraphrase, but basically we're you know we're this interdependent cultural, totally paraphrasing." Um, the people who are most directly connected to the issue have now heard from everyone Mm. and they act on behalf, they use their own judgment to act on behalf of everything they've just heard. It's their job to integrate everything that they've just heard everyone say. So the group doesn't get to tell someone how to use their judgment. Everyone gets to act on behalf of this greater whole, I'm sure there must be times, you know, when they sit there and then they actually come to a certain deliberation. But um, what I saw in action in heated moments um, was just that. And I think when they were deciding whether or not I could stay, it was probably more sociocratic, like, who doesn't want him to stay? But everyone suddenly dispersed, and this person said, okay, you're good. So I got to stay. Fantastic. And what happened with the campesinos? Well, I didn't get to see what was happening on that edge. Um, I imagined that the Lock and Don would try to engage them constructively anyway, but I didn't get to see how it was resolved, except I know that there wasn't further violence, or at least not, that I heard of, and I probably would have heard of it. But how this then comes back to our community, I can say that I wanted to come home and inhabit that, and I wanted to scale it up, and I thought that what I had just seen was so inherently human to like our, our spirituality, our, our physiology, our psychology, that... Um, I thought that if people would have an experience of that kind of collaboration, uh, that it would tend to root and replicate. Mm-hmm. And city repair is really based on that idea, um, you know, that we model stuff. It's so enjoyable, um, and you know, largely because there's food and music involved, and people are connecting and making friends and finding new lovers or whatever you know, whatever it is um, that that the, that the that the mode or the concept replicates in original forms so in my neighborhood i can definitely tell you that that social culture um, is is the main piece of architecture that persists and continues to grow
0: okay
1: Um, we have been doing this now for 20 years and every single year we reinvent the cultural space of the intersection Um, every year we sit down and we redesign it and then we reinstall it so there's 20 there's now 20 Four twenty-five 25 layers of community murals on the street surface. We get together in the early spring and st- restart the process that we don't get anything done. And everyone's so happy to see each other that that doesn't matter. And then we're like, oh, well, you know, we'll reschedule. We do that every year. Like, oh yeah, well, we'll reschedule. <laughs> All right. And then everybody comes back um, with thoughts to share. And, you know, there's different ways that things go around. And then there's kind of popcorn style of people suggesting things and the kids always go off on their own and the adults think they're getting things done. And then the kids come in with their ideas and the adults throw aside everything they've been figuring out and the kids take over and their kids, the kids are way more creative and uh, hilarious. So then the adults say, all right, well, we'll do what the kids want. Every single time it goes like that. Brilliant. And then by the um, third potluck, you know, a final design is presented. You know, there are people with serious artistic skills. Boy, it just turned out that people found so much fun and fulfillment in playing these kinds of roles in their community and to me I, you know my 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 goal was like how do i trick people into coming back into their villager sensibility
0: have you found also that people are more inclined not to have a work zone and a home zone that they're staying home to do something that allows them to earn a living within the community has that worked
1: yeah and i would say <laughs> you know, i'm i'm part of the evidence I'm citing, but I mean, I've seen it in all these other people as well, but to see people go from, you know, basically being conditioned to have, like have a, an identity that is cultivated within a perfunctory society, like a, where they play a specific role and then, you know, like defining themselves by how hard they work to actually learn how to just be in time yeah. and, um, share stories and to find fulfillment by being present. That's actually one of the most important things to realize, um, I've been thinking about this over and over, like how do we help people realize that this is personal? Yes. When people are so polarized over insolvable kind of abstract causes or, or issues, and for them to realize like sustainability, resilience, things related to um, the transformation that we seek in infrastructure, actually the real benefit is, is, is personal. It's felt in terms of your, your own um, peace of mind, your own health the health of your family, whether or not your parents stay together.
0: Or you stay together. Yeah, yeah. And not just not being in a world where... I remember in the days when I used to have a kind of paid job that I really didn't like, I would wake up every hour through the night on a Sunday night, counting down to Monday morning, wondering how I could not have to go to work. And I imagine there are people still doing that. Less because lockdown kind of began to break that down. But it also seems to me that the, whatever we call the structures that are holding onto business as usual, are desperate for us to go back into that kind of annihilating, horrendous, soul-destroying existence. And that what you're offering is the capacity to go, actually, we don't need to do that. And we don't need to necessarily go and live in a straw bale hut in the middle of nowhere to do it. We can bring that sense of wildness that otherwise happens in in remote rural communities into the centres of our cities. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. There's so many different ways that we can talk about it from different angles too. I this is something I'm I've been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, I, I would love to help the the most wealthy and powerful uh, to you know question things themselves. Like, how much this is really enhancing my quality of life. Do I need another mega yacht? really?, yeah. yeah, really. i I basically think of it this way. You know all you really have, I mean, beyond what you kind of think you possess, is the surface of your senses. how you feel about yourself and obviously your relationship to the world and other people affect you. but really, it's 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 how you're feeling inside and your surface area that is is what you really have as a quality of a living experience hmm. and um I would say most of the very wealthy people I know are having a miserable experience within their surface area. Yep. We can't give up on that strategy of trying to people appeal, appeal to people's humanity and invite them to join us at the table um, of mm. culture. And I think, you know, I've, I've seen, I mean, I'm, I'm in touch with various progressive developers who are just absolutely thriving by creating affordable housing and participatory villages with diverse scales and, projects that sit on land trusts, so they're permanently affordable. They know that they're creating a legacy. And
0: not just a statue in an Oxford college, which is how they used to do it. Yeah. And then the statues get pulled down.
1: Right, yeah. I, I want to convey this. I mean, my friend Eli, who does so many wonderful urban infill villages, you know, he's just constantly working to try to transform larger development culture. The beautiful thing that, I don't know if he's, he's figured out how to say this yet, but everybody loves him. Like when he speaks in the city of Portland, everybody listens because they trust him and they respect him, right. and he's beloved now. And his his wife is beloved, his children are taken care of. Like people recognize him with respect everywhere he goes. So he doesn't have to die to leave a legacy; he gets to inhabit a fulfilling life.
0: Right. Somehow we have to get the word out that it's done differently, and you've got you've got the City Repair Project website,
1: Cityrepair.org, dot org, dot com, and then. Um, Our radical design office that is a kind of, it came out of city repair to establish itself on its own, is communitytexture.net.
0: Right. So we'll put those in the show notes. But what we really want is somehow a person in every city around the world who's listening to this to get out and talk to your local city council. Because I think, you know, city councils are made up of people. Around here, they are stiflingly unimaginative. It's like they pick people based on their absence of creativity. Yeah. But there must be people who could be creative if they were given the agency to do that.
1: yes, so I, I would just like to say, as we're winding down that you know our overarching goal or our overarching strategy is to use design or to use creative infrastructure projects as a means to build community and help people rediscover their agency. And um, it seems, you know, as if, those projects can be quite small, whether it's a community bench or a kiosk or, a, or even a playground at the, you know, the most joyous scale. Um, but what you're doing is actually using that as a catalyst to have a big effect. In fact, I think resilience is characterized by small being big and big being small, really upending the idea that giant things are what is important. But to realize more deeply that as you engage officials, as you engage anyone in the process, you can actually be transforming systems through how you engage the human beings in them to join you in this cause and identify with what you're Mm. doing, then it can go to any conceivable scale. And you're really thinking the whole time that you're changing the world. Yes.
0: Yes. If we gave you 10 years, starting now, and access to everyone who runs a city around the planet, and you are able to make everything that you want happen, could you sketch for us the world that would be 2030 if everything worked out in the best way possible?
1: I can definitely do that. And I can characterize the experience of that world. Um, and that's actually the best question anyone has ever asked me. So I can pretty much die now.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Go for it.
1: I can tell you that as I've dreamt of the answer to that question almost my whole life, it would. Be characterized by a changed personal experience of being alive for each person. I mean, why we're talking about city repair is it's all about people enacting the world that they want to see directly. The distinction between work and play would be um, dissolved and it would become one thing. That like the work you did to support your community would be meaningful and uh, not destructive to the world. Inevitably, in order to reduce um, carbon emissions, you have to localize living and working so you're not transiting your body through space every day so that's kind of a given that's kind of a design constraint so if you do that the quality of your life will increase the spectrum of your relationships will deepen and broaden your satisfaction will increase and you'll stop needing to have so much money um, because so many of your needs will be met because people will be like oh wow thanks for taking care of my children or showing them how to use that tool you know the kind of just reciprocity that happens automatically. So 2030, if we're going to survive, it has to be characterized by um, greater meaning and satisfaction, more um, direct connection, the less of a need for mobility, um, and more of um, a kind of an equilibrium and ease and an aesthetic satisfaction on the ground where we stand, that we're not really monetizing our reality so much, but we're really seeing the home not as a commodity, but as a hearth. So You know, as you look around the world, I would say you're going to see vegetation everywhere. The uh, landscapes are going to be edible. They're going to support native species. That'll be for sure. Um, And then there'll be lots of retrofits that you'll see everywhere in terms of art happening in public spaces, Um, rooftops becoming either respirating ecologies or reflective surfaces as we all kind of come into common cause to confront climate change and repair the ecologies of the world. But this means we can't wait for the wealthy and powerful to wake up to the fact that they can live more satisfying lives within their own surface area. We can't wait for that. We can keep inviting them to that, but ultimately we've got to really seize our own tools, realize, realize our own creative destinies, depend upon you know, our taking the initiative, and just begin to create everywhere. Um, out of control but in concert and in collaboration
0: that sounds amazing
1: yay let's go there
0: yeah let's do it well let's make it happen we've got 10 years we can do that and we might even get to the point where we're able to have net negative carbon and begin to to reverse things and increase biodiversity and just make being a human being fun again (laughs) that would be that would be so amazing Alrighty, I think I think that's a good place to end. I I can envisage possibly coming back again for a second bite, but for now, thank you for coming on to Accidental Gods. Thanks, Miranda. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Mark for being a trailblazer and an inspiration, and for not giving up on humanity, for having the vision of how our city centres could be places of astonishing, vibrant, village-like community. If all our cities in all of our nations were repaired, Along the lines of his vision, our world would be a different place. If you live or work in a city or used to work in a city but are now working from home, why not see if you can persuade local people to begin to repair, to regenerate, to recreate what it is to be human? This is how we will shift our narratives, one intersection at a time. So that's your homework for this week. Go out and change the nature of the places where you live. We will be back next week with another conversation. And if you have ideas of people you would like to hear on the podcast, please do get in touch. You will find me at, Amanda at accidentalgods.life. Though we are quite booked up, so if you send a name and you don't hear them straight away, that's why. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us there, that address again is accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and access to the Accidental Gods membership portal, which is a structured training designed to bring everyone into connection with the more-than-human world, that part where we can ask for the help that we need to be the best that we can be. So if you know of anybody who would like to be active in being part of the generative dance of all of the world, please do send them this link. And meanwhile, that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.